Chapter forty four of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyke Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty four. Our housekeeping. It was a strange condition of things, the honeymoon being over and the bridesmaids gone home, when I found myself sitting down in my small house with Dora quite thrown out of employment, as I may say, in respect of the delicious old occupation of making love. It seemed such an extraordinary thing to have Dora always there. It was so unaccountable not to be obliged to go out to see her, not to have any occasion to be tormenting myself about her, not to have to write to her, not to be scheming and devising opportunities of being alone with her. Sometimes of an evening, when I looked up from my writing and saw her seated opposite, I would lean back in my chair and think how queer it was that there we were, alone together as a matter of course, nobody's business any more, all the romance of our engagement put away upon a shelf to rust, no one to please but one another, one another to please for life. When there was a debate and I was kept out very late, it seemed so strange to me as I was walking home to think that Dora was at home. It was such a wonderful thing at first to have her come softly down to talk to me as I ate my supper. It was such a stupendous thing to know for certain that she put her hair in papers. It was altogether such an astonishing event to see her do it. I doubt whether two young birds could have known less about keeping house than I and my pretty Dora did. We had a servant, of course. She kept house for us. I have still a latent belief that she must have been Mrs. Crupp's daughter in disguise. We had such an awful time of it with Mary Ann. Her name was Paragon. Her nature was represented to us when we engaged her as being feebly expressed in her name. She had a written character as large as a proclamation, and, according to this document, could do everything of a domestic nature that ever I heard of, and a great many things I never did hear of she was a woman in the prime of life of a severe countenance and subject particularly in the arms to a sort of perpetual measles or fiery rash she had a cousin in the lifeguards with such long legs that he looked like the afternoon shadow of somebody else his shell-jacket was as much too little for him as he was too big for the premises. He made the cottage smaller than it need have been by being so very much out of proportion to it besides which the walls were not thick and whenever he passed the evening at our house we always knew of it by hearing one continual growl in the kitchen our treasure was warranted sober and honest i am therefore willing to believe that she was in a fit when we found her under the boiler and that the deficient teaspoons were attributable to the dustman but she preyed upon our minds dreadfully we felt our inexperience and were unable to help ourselves we should have been at her mercy if she had had any but she was a remorseless woman and had none she was the cause of our first little quarrel my dearest life said i one day to dora do you think mary ann has any idea of time why dodie inquired dora looking up innocently from her drawing my love because it's five and we were to have dined at four Dora glanced wistfully at the clock, and hinted that she thought it was too fast. "'On the contrary, my love,' said I, referring to my watch, "'it's a few minutes too slow.' My little wife came and sat upon my knee, to coax me to be quiet, and drew a line with her pencil down the middle of my nose, but I couldn't dine off that, though it was very agreeable. "'Don't you think, my dear,' said I, "'it would be better for you to remonstrate with Mary Ann?' 
oh no please i couldn't doady said dora why not my love i gently asked oh because i am such a little goose said dora and she knows i am i thought this sentiment so incompatible with the establishment of my system of check on mary ann that i frowned a little oh what ugly wrinkles in my bad boy's forehead said dora and still being on my knee she traced them with her pencil putting it to her rosy lips to make it mark blacker and working at my forehead with a quaint little mockery of being industrious that quite delighted me in spite of myself there's a good child said dora it makes its face so much prettier to laugh but my love said i no no please cried dora with a kiss don't be a naughty bluebeard don't be serious my precious wife said i we must be serious sometimes come sit down on this chair close beside me give me the pencil there now let us talk sensibly you know dear what a little hand it was to hold and what a tiny wedding-ring it was to see you know my love it is not exactly comfortable to have to go out without one's dinner now is it no replied dora faintly my love how you tremble because i know you are going to scold me exclaimed dora in a piteous voice my sweet i am only going to reason oh but reasoning is worse than scolding exclaimed dora in despair i didn't marry to be reasoned with if you meant to reason with such a poor little thing as i am you ought to have told me so you cruel boy i tried to pacify dora but she turned away her face and shook her curls from side to side and said you cruel cruel boy so many times that i really did not exactly know what to do so i took a few turns up and down the room in my uncertainty and came back again dora my darling no i am not your darling because you must be sorry that you married me or else you wouldn't reason with me returned dora i felt so injured by the inconsequential nature of this charge that it gave me courage to be grave now my dora said i you are very childish and you are talking nonsense you must remember i am sure that i was obliged to go out yesterday when dinner was half over and that the day before i was made quite unwell by being obliged to eat underdone veal in a hurry to-day i don't dine at all and i am afraid to say how long we waited for breakfast and then the water didn't boil i don't mean to reproach you my dear but this is not comfortable oh you cruel cruel boy to say i am a disagreeable wife cried dora now my dear dora you must know that i never said that you said i wasn't comfortable cried dora i said the housekeeping was not comfortable it's exactly the same thing cried dora and she evidently thought so for she wept most grievously i took another turn across the room full of love for my pretty wife and distracted by self-accusatory inclinations to knock my head against the door i sat down again and said i am not blaming you dora we have both a great deal to learn i am only trying to show you my dear that you must you really must i was resolved not to give this up accustom yourself to look after mary ann likewise to act a little for yourself and me i wonder i do at your making such ungrateful speeches sobbed dora when you know that the other day when you said you would like a little bit of fish i went out myself miles and miles and ordered it to surprise you and it was very kind of you my own darling said i i felt it so much that i wouldn't on any account even have mentioned that you bought a salmon which was too much for two or that it cost one pound six which is more than we can afford <laughs> you enjoyed it very much sobbed dora and said i was a mouse 
and i'll say so again my love i returned a thousand times but i had wounded dora's soft little heart and she was not to be comforted she was so pathetic in her sobbing and bewailing that i felt as if i had said i don't know what to hurt her i was obliged to hurry away i was kept out late and i felt all night such pangs of remorse as made me miserable i had the conscience of an assassin and was haunted by a vague sense of enormous wickedness it was two or three hours past midnight when i got home i found my aunt in our house sitting up for me is anything the matter aunt said i alarmed nothing trot she replied sit down sit down little blossom has been rather out of spirits and i have been keeping her company that's all i leaned my head upon my hand and felt more sorry and downcast as i sat looking at the fire than i could have supposed possible so soon after the fulfilment of my brightest hopes as i sat thinking i happened to meet my aunt's eyes which were resting on my face there was an anxious expression in them but it cleared directly i assure you aunt said i i have been quite unhappy myself all night to think of dora being so but i had no other intention than to speak to her tenderly and lovingly about our home affairs my aunt nodded encouragement you must have patience trot said she of course heaven knows i don't mean to be unreasonable aunt no no said my aunt but little blossom is a very tender little blossom and the wind must be gentle with her i thanked my good aunt in my heart for her tenderness towards my wife and i was sure that she knew i did don't you think aunt said i after some further contemplation of the fire that you could advise and counsel dora a little for our mutual advantage now and then trot returned my aunt with some emotion no don't ask me such a thing her tone was so very earnest that i raised my eyes in surprise i look back upon my life child said my aunt and i think of some who are in their graves with whom i might have been on kinder terms if i judged harshly of other people's mistakes in marriage it may have been because i had bitter reason to judge harshly of my own let it pass i have been a grumpy frumpy wayward sort of a woman a good many years i am still and i always shall be but you and i have done one another some good trot at all events you have done me good my dear and division must not come between us at this time of day division between us cried i child child said my aunt smoothing her dress how soon it might come between us or how unhappy i might make our little blossom if i meddled in anything a prophet couldn't say i want our pet to like me and be as gay as a butterfly remember your own home in that second marriage and never do both me and her the injury you have hinted at i comprehended at once that my aunt was right and i comprehended the full extent of her generous feeling towards my dear wife these are early days trot she pursued and rome was not built in a day nor in a year you have chosen freely for yourself a cloud passed over her face for a moment i thought and you have chosen a very pretty and a very affectionate creature it will be your duty and it will be your pleasure too of course i know that i am not delivering a lecture to estimate her as you chose her by the qualities she has and not by the qualities she may not have the latter you must develop in her if you can if you cannot child here my aunt rubbed her nose you must accustom yourself to do without em but remember my dear your future is between you two no one can assist you you are to work it out for yourselves this is marriage trot and heaven bless you both in it for a pair of babes in the wood as you are my aunt said this in a sprightly way and gave me a kiss to ratify the blessing now said she 
light my little lantern and see me into my bandbox by the garden path for there was a communication between our cottages in that direction give betsy trotwood's love to the blossom when you come back and whatever you do trot never dream of setting betsy up as a scarecrow for if i ever saw her in the glass she's quite grim enough and gaunt enough in her private capacity with this my aunt tied her head up in a handkerchief with which she was accustomed to make a bundle of it on such occasions and i escorted her home as she stood in her garden holding up her little lantern to light me back i thought her observation of me had an anxious air again but i was too much occupied in pondering on what she had said and too much impressed for the first time in reality by the conviction that dora and i had indeed to work out our future for ourselves and that no one could assist us to take much notice of it dora came stealing down in her little slippers to meet me now that i was alone and cried upon my shoulder and said i had been hard-hearted and she had been naughty and i said much the same thing in effect i believe and we made it up and agreed that our first little difference was to be our last and that we were never to have another if we lived a hundred years the next domestic trial we went through was the ordeal of servants mary ann's cousin deserted into our coal-hole and was brought out to our great amazement by a piquet of his companions in arms who took him away handcuffed in a procession that covered our front garden with ignominy this nerved me to get rid of mary ann who went so mildly on receipt of wages that i was surprised until i found out about the teaspoons and also about the little sum she had borrowed in my name of the tradespeople without authority after an interval of mrs kidgerbury the oldest inhabitant of kentish town i believe who went out charring but was too feeble to execute her conceptions of that art we found another treasure who was one of the most amiable of women and who generally made a point of falling either up or down the kitchen stairs with a tray and almost plunged into the parlour as into a bath with her tea-things the ravages committed by this unfortunate rendering her dismissal necessary she was succeeded with intervals of mrs kidgerbury by a long line of incapables terminating in a young person of genteel appearance who went to greenwich fair in dora's bonnet after whom i remember nothing but an average equality of failure everybody we had anything to do with seemed to cheat us our appearance in a shop was a signal for the damaged goods to be brought out immediately if we bought a lobster it was full of water all our meat turned out to be tough and there was hardly any crust to our loaves in search of the principle on which joints ought to be roasted to be roasted enough and not too much i myself referred to the cookery book and found it there established as the allowance of quarter of an hour to every pound and say a quarter over but the principle always failed us by some curious fatality and we never could hit any medium between redness and cinders i had reason to believe that in accomplishing these failures we incurred a far greater expense than if we had achieved a series of triumphs it appeared to me on looking over the tradesmen's books as if we might have kept the basement story paved with butter such was the extensive scale of our consumption of that article i don't know whether the excise duties of the period may have exhibited any increase in the demand for pepper but if our performances did not affect the market i should say several families must have left off using it and the most wonderful fact of all was that we never had anything in the house as to the washerwoman pawning the clothes and coming in a state of penitent intoxication to apologize i suppose that might have happened several times to anybody also the chimney on fire the parish engine and perjury on the part of the beadle 
but I apprehend that we were personally fortunate in engaging a servant with a taste for cordials, who swelled our running account for porter at the public-house by such inexplicable items as quartern rum-shrub, Mrs. C., quartern gin and cloves, Mrs. C., glass rum and peppermint, Mrs. C., the parenthesis always referring to Dora, who was supposed, it appeared on explanation, to have imbibed the whole of these refreshments. One of our first feats in the housekeeping way was a little dinner to Traddles. I met him in town, and asked him to walk out with me that afternoon. He readily consenting, I wrote to Dora, saying I would bring him home. It was pleasant weather, and on the road we made my domestic happiness the theme of conversation. Traddles was very full of it, and said that, picturing himself with such a home, and Sophie waiting and preparing for him, he could think of nothing wanting to complete his bliss. I could not have wished for a prettier little wife at the opposite end of the table, but I certainly could have wished, when we sat down, for a little more room. I did not know how it was, but though there were only two of us, we were at once always cramped for room, and yet had always enough room to lose everything in. I suspect it may have been because nothing had a place of its own, except Jip's pagoda, which invariably blocked up the main thoroughfare. On the present occasion, Traddles was so hemmed in by the pagoda and the guitar-case, and Dora's flower-painting and my writing-table, that I had serious doubts of the possibility of his using his knife and fork, but he protested, with his own good humour, "'Oceans of room, Copperfield! I assure you, oceans!' There was another thing I could have wished, namely, that Jip had never been encouraged to walk about the tablecloth during dinner. I began to think there was something disorderly in his being there at all, even if he had not been in the habit of putting his foot in the salt or the melted butter. On this occasion he seemed to think he was introduced expressly to keep Traddles at bay, and he barked at my old friend and made short runs at his plate with such undaunted pertinacity that he may be said to have engrossed the conversation. However, as I knew how tender-hearted my dear Dora was, and how sensitive she would be to any slight upon her favourite, I hinted no objection. For similar reasons I made no allusion to the skirmishing plates upon the floor, or to the disreputable appearance of the casters, which were all at sixes and sevens, and looked drunk, or to the further blockade of traddles by wandering vegetable dishes and jugs. I could not help wondering in my own mind, as I contemplated the boiled leg of mutton before me, previous to carving it, how it came to pass that our joints of meat were of such extraordinary shapes, and whether our butcher contracted for all the deformed sheep that came into the world. But I kept my reflections to myself. "'My love,' I said to Dora, "'what have you got in that dish?' I could not imagine why Dora had been making tempting little faces at me, as if she wanted to kiss me. "'Oysters, dear.' said Dora timidly. "'Was that your thought?' said I, delighted. "'Yes, Dodie,' said Dora. "'There never was a happier one,' I exclaimed, laying down the carving-knife and fork. "'There is nothing Traddles like so much.' "'Yes, Dodie,' said Dora, "'and so I bought a beautiful little barrel of them, and the man said they were very good. But I, I am afraid there is something the matter with them. They don't seem right.' Here Dora shook her head and diamonds twinkled in her eyes. "'They are only opened in both shells,' said I. "'Take the top one off, my love.' "'But it won't come off,' said Dora, trying very hard and looking very much distressed. "'Do you know, Copperfield,' said Traddles, cheerfully examining the dish, "'I think this is in consequence. They are capital oysters, but I think it is in consequence of their never having been opened.' 
They never had been opened, and we had no oyster-knives, and couldn't have used them if we had, so we looked at the oysters and ate the mutton. At least we ate as much of it as was done, and made up with capers. If I had permitted him, I am satisfied that Traddles would have made a perfect savage of himself, and eaten a plateful of raw meat to express enjoyment of the repast, but I would hear of no such immolation on the altar of friendship, and we had a course of bacon instead, there happening by good fortune to be cold bacon in the larder. My poor little wife was in such affliction when she thought I should be annoyed, and in such a state of joy when she found I was not, that the discomfiture I had subdued very soon vanished, and we passed a happy evening, Dora sitting with her arm on my chair while Traddles and I discussed a glass of wine, and taking every opportunity of whispering in my ear that it was good of me not to be a cruel, cross old boy. By and by she made tea for us, which it was so pretty to see her do as if she was busying herself with a set of dolls' tea-things, that I was not particular about the quality of the beverage. Then Traddles and I played a game or two of cribbage, and Dora singing to the guitar the while, it seemed to me as if our courtship and marriage were a tender dream of mine, and the night when I first listened to her voice were not yet over. When Traddles went away, and I came back into the parlour from seeing him out, my wife planted her chair close to mine, and sat down by my side. "'I am very sorry,' she said. "'Will you try to teach me, Dodie?' "'I must teach myself first, Dora,' said I. "'I am as bad as you, love.' "'Ah, but you can learn,' she returned. "'And you are a clever, clever man.' "'Nonsense, Mouse,' said I. "'I wish,' resumed my wife, after a long silence, "'that I could have gone down into the country for a whole year "'and lived with Agnes.' Her hands were clasped upon my shoulder, and her chin rested on them, and her blue eyes looked quietly into mine. "'Why so?' I asked. "'I think she might have improved me, and I think I might have learned from her,' said Dora. "'All in good time, my love. Agnes has had her father to take care of these many years, you should remember. Even when she was quite a child, she was the Agnes whom we know,' said I. "'Will you call me a name I want you to call me?' inquired Dora, without moving. "'What is it?' I asked, with a smile. "'It's a stupid name,' she said, shaking her curls for a moment. "'Child-wife.' I laughingly asked my child-wife what her fancy was in desiring to be so called. She answered without moving, otherwise than as the arm I twined about her may have brought her blue eyes nearer to me. "'I don't mean, you silly fellow, that you should use the name instead of Dora. I only mean that you should think of me that way. When you are going to be angry with me, say to yourself, It's only my child-wife. When I am very disappointing, say, I knew a long time ago that you would make but a child-wife. When you miss what I should like to be, and I think can never be, say, Still my foolish child-wife loves me, for indeed I do.' I had not been serious with her, having no idea until now that she was serious herself, but her affectionate nature was so happy in what I now said to her with my whole heart, that her face became a laughing one before her glittering eyes were dry. She was soon my child-wife indeed, sitting down on the floor outside the Chinese house, ringing all the little bells one after another, to punish Jip for his recent bad behaviour, while Jip lay blinking in the doorway with his head out, even too lazy to be teased. This appeal of Dora's made a strong impression on me. 
I look back on the time I write of. I invoke the innocent figure that I dearly loved to come out from the mists and shadows of the past and turn its gentle head towards me once again. And I can still declare that this one little speech was constantly in my memory. I may not have used it to the best account. I was young and inexperienced, but I never turned a deaf ear to its artless pleading. Dora told me shortly afterwards that she was going to be a wonderful housekeeper. Accordingly, she polished the tablets, pointed the pencil, bought an immense account-book, carefully stitched up with a needle and thread all the leaves of the cookery-book which Jip had torn, and made quite a desperate little attempt to be good, as she called it. But the figures had the old obstinate propensity. They would not add up. When she had entered two or three laborious items in the account-book, Jip would walk over the page wagging his tail and smear them all out. Her own little right-hand middle finger got steeped to the very bone in ink, and I think that was the only decided result obtained. Sometimes of an evening, when I was at home and at work, for I wrote a good deal now, and was beginning in a small way to be known as a writer, I would lay down my pen and watch my child-wife trying to be good. First of all, she would bring out the immense account-book and lay it down upon the table with a deep sigh. Then she would open it at the place where Jip had made it illegible last night, and call Jip up to look at his misdeeds. This would occasion a diversion in Jip's favour, and some inking of his nose, perhaps, as a penalty. Then she would tell Jip to lie down on the table instantly, like a lion, which was one of his tricks, though I cannot say the likeness was striking and if he were in an obedient humour he would obey. Then she would take up a pen and begin to write, and find a hair in it. Then she would take up another pen and begin to write, and find that it spluttered. Then she would take up another pen and begin to write, and say in a low voice, Oh, it's a talking pen, and will disturb Doady. And then she would give it up as a bad job, and put the account-book away, after pretending to crush the lion with it. Or if she were in a very sedate and serious state of mind, she would sit down with the tablets and a little basket of bills and other documents, which looked more like curl-papers than anything else, and endeavour to get some result out of them. After severely comparing one with another, and making entries on the tablets, and blotting them out, and counting on all the fingers of her left hand over and over again, backwards and forwards, she would be so vexed and discouraged, and would look so unhappy, that it gave me pain to see her bright face clouded, and for me, and I would go softly to her and say, "'What's the matter, Dora?' Dora would look up hopelessly and reply, "'They won't come right. They make my head ache so, and they won't do anything I want.' Then I would say, "'Now, let us try together. Let me show you, Dora.' Then I would commence a practical demonstration, to which Dora would pay profound attention perhaps for five minutes, when she would begin to be dreadfully tired and would lighten the subject by curling my hair, or trying the effect of my face with my shirt-collar turned down. If I tacitly checked this playfulness and persisted, she would look so scared and disconsolate as she became more and more bewildered, that the remembrance of her natural gaiety when I first strayed into her path, and of her being my child-wife, would come reproachfully upon me, and I would lay the pencil down and call for the guitar. I had a great deal of work to do, and had many anxieties, but the same considerations made me keep them to myself. 
I am far from sure now that it was right to do this, but I did it for my child-wife's sake. I search my breast and I committed secrets, if I know them, without any reservation to this paper. The old unhappy loss or want of something had, I am conscious, some place in my heart, but not to the embitterment of my wife. When I walked alone in the fine weather and thought of the summer days when all the air had been filled with my boyish enchantment, I did miss something of the realization of my dreams, but I thought it was a softened glory of the past, which nothing could have thrown upon the present time. I did feel sometimes, for a little while, that I could have wished my wife had been my counsellor, had had more character and purpose to sustain me and improve me by had been endowed with power to fill up the void which somewhere seemed to be about me. But I felt as if this were an unearthly consummation of my happiness, that never had been meant to be, and never could have been. I was a boyish husband as to years. I had known the softening influence of no other sorrows or experiences than those recorded in these leaves. If I did any wrong, as I may have done much, I did it in mistaken love, and in my want of wisdom. I write the exact truth. It would avail me nothing to extenuate it now. Thus it was that I took upon myself the toils and cares of our life, and had no partner in them. We lived much as before, in reference to our scrambling household arrangements, but I had got used to those, and Dora, I was pleased to see, was seldom vexed now. She was bright and cheerful in the old childish way, and loved me dearly, and was happy with her old trifles. When the debates were heavy, I mean as to length, not quality, for in the last respect they were not often otherwise, and I went home late, Dora would never rest when she heard my footsteps, but would always come downstairs to meet me. When my evenings were unoccupied by the pursuit for which I had qualified myself with so much pains, and I was engaged in writing at home, she would sit quietly near me, however late the hour, and be so mute that I would often think she had dropped asleep but generally when i raised my head i saw her blue eyes looking at me with the quiet attention of which i have already spoken oh what a weary boy said dora one night when i met her eyes as i was shutting up my desk what a weary girl said i that's more to the purpose you must go to bed another time my love it's far too late for you no don't send me to bed pleaded dora coming to my side pray don't do that dora to my amazement she was sobbing on my neck. "'Not well, my dear. Not happy.' "'Yes, quite well, and very happy,' said Dora. "'But say you let me stop and see you write.' "'Why, what a sight for such bright eyes at midnight,' I replied. "'Are they bright, though?' returned Dora, laughing. "'I'm so glad they're bright.' "'Little vanity,' said I. "'But it was not vanity. It was only harmless delight in my admiration. I knew that very well before she told me so.' "'If you think them pretty, say I may always stop and see you write,' said Dora. "'Do you think them pretty?' "'Very pretty. Then let me always stop and see you write.' "'I'm afraid that won't improve their brightness, Dora.' "'Yes, it will, because, you clever boy, you'll not forget me then, while you are full of silent fancies. Will you mind it if I say something very, very silly, more than usual?' inquired Dora, peeping over my shoulder into my face. "'What wonderful thing is that?' said I. "'Please, let me hold the pens,' said Dora. "'I want to have something to do with all those many hours when you are so industrious. May I hold the pens?' 
The remembrance of her pretty joy when I said yes brings tears into my eyes. The next time I sat down to write, and regularly afterwards, she sat in her old place with a spare bundle of pens at her side. Her triumph in this connection with my work, and her delight when I wanted a new pen, which I very often feigned to do, suggested to me a new way of pleasing my child-wife. I occasionally made a pretense of wanting a page or two of manuscript copied. Then Dora was in her glory. The preparation she made for this great work, the apron she put on, the bib she borrowed from the kitchen to keep off the ink, the time she took, the innumerable stoppages she made to have a laugh with Jip, as if he understood it all, her conviction that her work was incomplete unless she signed her name at the end of it, the way in which she would bring it to me, like a school copy, and then, when I praised it, clasp me round the neck, are touching recollections to me, simple as they might appear to other men. She took possession of the keys soon after this, and went jingling about the house with the whole bunch in a little basket, tied to her slender waist. I seldom found that the places to which they belonged were locked, or that they were of any use except as a plaything for Jip, but Dora was pleased, and that pleased me. She was quite satisfied that a good deal was affected by this make-believe of housekeeping, and was as merry as if we had been keeping a baby-house for a joke. So it went on. Dora was hardly less affectionate to my aunt than to me, and often told her of the time when she was afraid she was a cross old thing. I never saw my aunt unbend more systematically to any one. She courted Jip, though Jip never responded, listened day after day to the guitar, I am afraid she had no taste for music, never attacked the incapables, though the temptation must have been severe, went wonderful distances on foot to purchase, as surprises, any trifles that she found Dora wanted, and never came in by the garden and missed her from the room, but that she would call out at the foot of the stairs in a voice that sounded cheerfully all over the house where's little blossom End of chapter forty four